Blog Talk Radio. At Firefly Willows L-I-V-E, we're working hard to be your trusted source for fun, enlightening, and heart-centered information and community. And we're passionate about the art of transformative media, the new leading edge of communication in our highly connected, media-rich world. If you're passionate about facilitating change and you have gifts or ideas you'd like to share, come join us, host a show, or be a guest, or connect us to an amazing speaker or teacher whose message is too good to miss. There's always room for courageous, knowledgeable changemakers, inspired artists, and new ideas. Let us know you're interested. Send an email to info at fireflywillows.com. We're Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E, helping you find and shine your inner light. The following program is brought to you by Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E. Good morning, everybody. This is Mildred Lynn McDonald, and I'm your host for Healing Conversations, live from Sebastopol. And today we're going to have a roundtable around the theme of conflict. And it's in the form of a quote by Esther Harding. And it goes like this, conflict is the beginning of consciousness. And I'll repeat it one more time. Conflict is the beginning of consciousness. Now joining me today to play with this quote a little bit and see where we land are two co-hosts of Firefly Willows Live. We have John Carousella from Utah. Good morning. And Heisey Ludemers from Menlo Park. Hello. How come? How come Heisey gets a, a a city and I only get and I get a state? Give me the city. Provo. We have John <laughs> Carousella from Provo. Good morning. <laughs> I see Letterers from still from Menlo Park. That's California to you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. And for our listeners, I'll throw it out there once more. The quote, conflict is the beginning of consciousness. This is one of those quotes that when you read it, it might not make sense to you at the beginning, but then you start to explore the different layers. And that's what I'd like to do today with John and with High C. So I'll throw it out there. What does this quote mean to you? How did it hit you? Conflict is an opportunity for change. And I think that's what struck me as the seminal point of understanding. If you don't have any resistance in your life, then there's nothing to respond to that challenges you. And I think there's a deepening of awareness that happens from the presence of things that challenge you. And I think that's where it comes from for me. I become more deeply conscious of what is available to be experienced in the presence of conflict. Is it a comfortable place for you to be, John? You know, it's not. I'm getting better at it as I get older, and I'm getting more willing to expose myself to it as I get wiser. And those are two different things. One is I, the older I get, the more experience I have, the more I realize that it's that conflict is not going to really harm me most of the time. So it's not, you know, it's like, okay, I can deal with that. But there's another part to it that is the recognition that in the presence of conflict, there's 
wisdom to be had that I wouldn't get any other way. I encourage myself to go into the place of conflict, even though it's uncomfortable, because there's just good stuff there. What about you, High C? Well, I think I would echo what John was saying in terms of conflict, bringing awareness. And and if we can allow ourselves to be aware when conflict arises, then we can ask ourselves questions of what is it that triggered the conflict? And then look deeper to say, and where is that coming from at a, a deeper level? And also, I think an important part is saying, and what is my part in this conflict? Because I think a lot of times people tend to see it as, well, this person said this, or this person came at me this way, or this person did this to me, and that's what created the conflict. Neglecting that maybe there is also something in that we did or contributed in some way that either helped to create the conflict or has allowed the conflict to become exacerbated. Uh, and usually people get so caught up in the conflict that they stop looking at themselves and they just start looking outward for blame or out of defense. And that, to me, I think that those are the things that are going to shut down the opportunity for that awareness or that consciousness to actually come about. Because if consciousness comes from a conflict, it means we have the opportunity for it not to repeat itself. But if we don't have the awareness and the consciousness, it means it's just a conflict that keeps coming up over and over again. So I guess it would be fair to say that in every conflict, there's the potential for an ah moment. The horrors of conflict in Africa, you know, intertribal things that have gone on for years and years and years and the brutality there. I don't know that I could find something to harvest from those kinds of conflicts. For me, it's about terminology. There is a difference between conflict and fight. And the things that you are referring to, even the things like in Africa or whatever, to me, those are fights. And I don't like it when they say that there is armed conflict in this country or in this part of the world or whatever. I would rather they say that there is armed fighting going mm -hmm. on because mm -hmm. conflict is a necessary part. Conflict is like the thing that comes and breaks up the status quo in order to hopefully, if everyone is willing to engage in the process, bring about some sort of change or growth. Fighting is more just about that person hurt me and I'm going to hurt them back or I feel like I need to hurt that person for some reason. And so to me, it's important to distinguish between the two because there's a whole thing about conflict resolution. But you don't hear things about processes for fight resolution. <laughs> and I think that that shows that there is an inherent difference between conflict and fighting but we often misuse the term, and that's where I would go to like what you were saying with Africa. If we're looking at what's happening in Africa as conflict, and then we're trying to find what lesson or awareness or consciousness can that bring about, we may struggle to find that because we're not seeing it simply as people fighting. People can fight over land, but that's not a conflict. That's just saying, you have something I want, and I'm going to try to take it, probably in an aggressive way. Now, 
conflict you could have in, say, the Israel-Palestine situation. But there's two sides to that. There's the conflict side and the fight side. Fight side is we're going to shoot missiles at each other. That's not a, a conflict resolution. The conflict is the deeper aspect which says we could learn how to coexist. We could recognize that over time each of us have taken something from the other one for whatever reasons. There we have room to actually grow and find a way to move beyond this. But fighting, shooting missiles at each other, doesn't really offer any room for growth or awareness. It just means who can hurt the most each time. I think that's pretty interesting how I see the splitting of the nomenclature into the conflict and the fight. Obviously, the conflict is the precursor to the fighting, and it's really important to understand where the conflict actually exists. But the fight doesn't have to happen. And the fight doesn't have to happen. Conflict means that we're just not in alignment. So I could have a work colleague and have a conflict with them because the way that they talk to me or something that I've done to them or whatever has created something that is not in harmony, is not in balance, is not in alignment. But that doesn't mean we have to now fight. It means we have to come to the table with our conflict and see if there is a way to work through that to some sort of resolution. Fighting would just mean I'm going to either try to get you fired or you're going to try to get me fired or I'm going to wait outside and I'm going to hit you upside the head when you walk out of the office for what you did to me versus seeing it as this is something that we can actually learn from, grow from, and resolve. So we're looking at conflict and what's coming to me is how do we manage ourselves through the conflict? In my personal experience, I had to become aware of how I acted when confronted with the potential of conflict. And for many years, I was keep the peace at any cost and run for the hills. Mm. And I had to really wrestle with that, get that to a place of being neutral before I could show up in a good way to have that beginning of consciousness moment. Because before that, I was in... I think fight or flight and primarily flight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how about you guys? What about, what's your personal experience with the managing the conflict or coming to that realization? Or is it just something completely new? (laughs) (laughs) That would would be delightful at some level. I think for me, there's something that you said to me, Mildred Lynn, several years ago that has stuck with me and it's so powerful. You said, what do you make it mean? And I pulled that phrase out so often now. In this case, in the presence of conflict, how I choose to engage and whether I choose to engage is a function of what I make it mean when I engage. Either I might be right, I might be wrong, I might be supported, I might be rejected in the presence of engaging that conflict. But it's the moment when I say to myself, okay, and so what am I going to make it mean when any of those scenarios happen? That a whole bunch of the charge around and the discomfort around engaging in that conflict can go away. Because it's no longer life or death. It's no longer a moral or a sacred truth that's at stake. It's no longer some ideal, it's just, oh, okay, I'm going to have a conflict with this person, and the result will be the result, and then I get to choose what I make that mean. 
and suddenly it's way easier. Before you had that moment, that beginning of new consciousness, where did you used to go with conflict? Where did did you land, John? I was always right, and I always had to win. Mm. Where are you now? So if you would describe it before as always right and always needed to win, what are the two qualifiers now in terms of conflict? Well, I'm still always right. (laughs) (laughs) And humble, yes. No, I think it comes down to I don't have to take the consequence so seriously, so I don't have to be right. I don't have to win. It's like, whatever, right? You know, it's just going to be another learning experience. It's going to be another experience. And that experience doesn't have to be a win or a loss, a success or a failure. It's just another piece of information, another thing that I absorbed from my experience living this life. You sound like a very agreeable fellow. Well, you know, on my good days. On good days. <laughs> when I reflect the Mildred Lynnness that has come <laughs> to rest on me. Oh, my. Hi, see, how about you? What about the conflict consciousness dance in your life? How does it hit you personally? And you know, I'm going to ask you, where did you go before you became conscious of the conflict vibe? I don't know if I can remember before birth. <laughs> <laughs> For me, it's important to step away from that phrase of fight or flight because that instills this idea that there's a very black and white, only two option approach. Either I run away or I go into aggression mode. And aggression can either mean that I attack or it can mean that I become defensive and put up my defenses and prepare for battle. And neither of those represent conflict. Conflict is somewhere in the middle of those two. And so it's saying instead of becoming defensive, which tends to be a a closed-off thing, it's a willingness to become open and expansive to say, I'm going to allow this conflict in to see what it has to say, what it has to reflect back to me that maybe I need to be seeing or learning about myself rather than I'm going to stand here and I'm going to be in, I'm going to beat you into submission until you see that I'm right or I can't be any other way or this is just how I am or, you know, whatever. Conflict to me also means there doesn't have to be a winner or loser, whereas fight implies that there is a winner and a loser. And so that conflict consciousness, if you want to use that, is the understanding that it's about being able to find a middle ground rather than I have to bring you over to my ground or I have to give up and come over to your ground. And I find this very nicely illustrated in the world of soccer, which is not something that is overly popular and is often seen in a bit of a derisive way in the United States, but it's much more popular around the rest of the world because soccer actually allows for a game to end in a draw. There doesn't have to be overtime to the point of until there is a winner, we will not stop. Hmm. Which is interesting. actually how all of our sports in America are designed. And so to me, I looked at that and I say, and it's perfectly fine for something to end in a draw because it means both people are still able to walk away 
rather than one person laying dead, basically, and the other person getting to do a victory dance on the body of the dead loser. <laughs> so graphic. I think. <laughs> to me, that's what fight is, and that tends to be how our culture approaches everything. There's no resolution to something other than we should be able to carry a gun and kill the other person. I hear you. I see. Now, what about if you were going to offer our listeners a growth tool about conflict? Now, mine would be navigating your way through conflict. If you're taking it step by step, you develop a skill. And so all of a sudden, once you have your ah moment and you recognize conflict as an opportunity to grow, you're putting it in another place and you're developing a growth tool. And I found that helped me a lot. I started off with little conflicts, and I found I was running for the hills less and less. Mm -hmm. And then I moved on to bigger things, to now I'm at a point where I trust myself, I go in with goodwill. I also have skill sets in that toolbox that help me navigate through the conflict. So that would be my tip for people. It's a process. You can develop skill sets. Start off small. Mm. I would suggest that people... You know, as I said earlier, consider what you make it mean. Whatever scenario comes out of after you've engaged in the conflict, consider what you make it, what you choose to make it mean. This is a really powerful one. And the other one is to, as within, so without, as above, so below. This is a hard one. A lot of times it's hard to see this. But don't give up trying to figure out how the conflict that you're experiencing outside of yourself is a reflection of something unresolved within yourself. And that comes with time and practice, but it's really, really quite a beautiful, startlingly beautiful path to go down. And the revelations that I've gotten about the conflict that I was unable to see inside myself that was being illustrated in the conflicts outside of myself, irreplaceable, fascinating. And how about you, Heisey? Aside from rebirth, of course. <laughs> of course, of course. One is to have the willingness to say, what is my part in this, rather than just seeing the other as the enemy. Two is to breathe into it and allow it to be a small step or multi-step process rather than having to be resolved all at once. And that, to me, again, is the difference between conflict and fight. Conflict says we're going to take the time to work through this rather than a fight which says we're going to beat each other senseless until one of us is laying dead. So it has to happen now, and it's until that point, and we're not going to stop until that's done, rather than we're going to allow this to go over time and make small steps towards finding that middle ground or that resolution. Three, I would also say if you feel it's going to be a fight or that you can't engage in it any other way, be willing to actively seek out a third-party objective mediator or arbitrator to help in the process and to facilitate the process of conversation and dialogue, which is extremely important to conflict, rather than thinking you can just hash it out between the two of you, just as an example of it's two people, because we may need that outside voice or that objective perspective to be there to not only calm each other down, but really it's there to call us out when we're being unreasonable or, or just trying to engage in fight. 
And that's why people, I think, don't want to have that arbitrator or mediator because they want to be found right or they want to win. And if somebody is there, they're always happy when the person says to the other person, well, see there, you're not listening to what so-and-so is saying. But then when that person, that same mediator says, now so-and-so, you know, the tone that you said that in really can trigger this. Suddenly so-and-so is like, uh, wait a minute, why are you calling me out on this? This was about the other person who obviously wasn't getting what I was saying. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that's an important component to conflict is recognizing when there is a need for a third party to help facilitate or mediate the process rather than thinking we just have to sit down and and hash this out ourselves and, and basically beat each other up, thinking that's going to be the resolution. Hi, see, I think you have a natural aptitude for conflict resolution. I disagree. You disagree, (laughs) (laughs) And on that note, on that note, I would like to thank everybody for listening to our roundtable today. Once again, the topic, conflict is the beginning of consciousness, and that's a quote from Esther Harding. So, hi, C, thank you for being with us today. Thank you very much. And John Carousella. From Provo. Provo. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for taking the time to join us this morning. Always delightful. For our listeners, stay tuned. We're going to have a new segment coming up shortly, just after this little interlude. Well, that's our roundtable for this week. Many thanks to Mildred Lynn McDonald and participants Deb and John Carousella and Heisey Lutmers. We hope you found this roundtable discussion engaging and thought-provoking. If you would like to join the conversation, visit facebook.com slash fireflywillows and add your comment under this week's roundtable post. Stay tuned. Welcome back. This is Mildred Lynn McDonald, and I'm your host for Healing Conversations, live from Sebastopol, California. Thank you for joining us today. Many of us have heard the expression to hold the space for someone or holding space. But until now, I haven't come across much information on what holding space actually looks like especially when you're caring for a loved one who is transitioning into the last stages of life. Enter Winnipeg, Manitoba-based teacher, writer, coach, retreat host, and facilitator, Heather Plett. When I read Heather's blog, I realized that she was able to lovingly articulate key concepts about the gift of holding space gleaned through her own life experience, the passing of her mother. During our time together today, Heather will explore eight life lessons that she has learned from the amazing people who held the space for her. So without further ado, let's beam off to Winnipeg, Manitoba And welcome, Heather, to the show today. Hello, Heather. Hi there. From when I talked to you before, you mentioned that you had written this blog, that you've written a lot of blogs, but for some reason, 
the Holding the Space blog seemed to touch a note with people. Can you share a little bit about how the outreach of that has manifested? Sure. It's been quite fascinating. As I think I told you, I've been blogging for more than 10 years now. And, you know, I have a, a modest following and a fair bit of interest, but suddenly this one blog post, you know, I really didn't know going in. It was just, to me, felt like another blog post. But there was something about it that seemed to capture people's imagination and capture their lived experience, really, I think, and it went viral. It suddenly was really amazing to see how many people were showing. It actually had the effect of crashing my website because there were so many people <laughs> visiting at once. I didn't have the bandwidth to handle it, and I had to increase my bandwidth. And suddenly it catapulted me into a whole new realm of outreach in terms of my work which was exciting and a little bit overwhelming all at once. I can can imagine. I remember when I read it, I read it from top to bottom, and it hit me that she nailed it. She absolutely nailed it. And the other part was I hadn't come across anybody sharing the information in such a practical way. So from my understanding from reading the blog, this blog content came from a very personal experience that you went through in regard to your mother's end-of-life journey. And I wanted to ask you to share with our listeners how this life event helped you value and appreciate the gift of holding the space. Sure. I Just over two years ago, my mom was dying in November of 2012, and she'd had cancer for about a year and a half at that point. And in the week that we knew that she was nearing her end end of her life, we gathered, my three siblings and I gathered in her home to be with her and to care for her. We chose not to have her in the hospital. And in that time, we knew that we were in a very profound moment of having to be there in a unique way to support mom. And what made that possible for us to be in that space in as gracious and strong a way as we could was the support that we received from a palliative care nurse who really had a profound way of holding us you know she wasn't there often and she didn't outwardly do a lot but it was her grace and her presence that really offered us showed us that she trusted us to do what was right she gave us just enough guidance to do what we needed to do and she really allowed us to do what we needed to do in support of mom and in her her last days as she was passing in the way that we needed to do as a family and it had a profound effect and I do a lot of facilitation and retreat work, as you mentioned, and I have, in those two years since, I've really been trying to take that practice that I witnessed into my work in in a more and more intentional way, because I think it has a profound effect, not just in a palliative care situation, but it's quite universal. So it sounds to me that a lot of us are very focused on doing and we value that. And it sounds like this palliative care nurse, based on your experience, you mentioned the word grace, that it was her presence, her being, that really brought an essence, a beautiful essence to the table. Yes, I think you're right on. because, And I'm realizing that more and more in my work, too, as I witness people that are really good at holding space. And I was just at a retreat with my mentor, Christina Baldwin, and she is one of the people that's taught me the most about this. 
And she does not necessarily say a lot of words into the circle that she hosts. And she's, you know, she's not doing a lot or you wouldn't, from outward appearance, it doesn't seem like she's, uh, you know, busy a lot of the time or, or, you know, really directing the space. But she just has this way of holding the space, holding presence in the space and giving you just the right amount of a strong container to do your own work in that space. And that's the kind of work that I try to do on a regular basis as well, to remove yourself as much as you need to so that the people that you're holding space for can have their own experience in that moment. It makes energy work so much easier. I think easier and harder, to be honest with you, because you have to learn it as a practice, and it takes a lot of personal practice to learn to get your ego out of the way. Oh, I agree with that. We're on the same page there. I wanted to go with the blog posting. I know there's eight tips, and we're going to go into those in just a few minutes. wanted to find out from you how the content of the Holding the Space information that's shared in your blog is being used. What type of feedback are you getting, and how is that practically being applied? If you would just have some examples. Sure. It's been really quite remarkable, the response that I've gotten from all over the world, the people that are engaging with the work. I'm hearing a lot of chaplains that are people doing spiritual ministry work in hospitals or in palliative care situations really resonate because I think they recognize. And I, I think what's happening for a lot of people is not that I've given them new information, but that I've given them a naming for what they already intuitively know how to do. So it's languaging something that is their gift already to people. So it's hospital chaplains, it's coaches, it's parents, it's children. I just got a beautiful email from a woman who was talking about holding space for her own mother who's been a, a fairly challenging presence in her life and she's learning to hold that space more graciously for her own mother. I've even been quoted in the Harvard Business Review. Fascinating article actually, which I would never have expected to be quoted because it was an article about how computers are replacing people in the workplace. And what they were saying is that there are some things that computers can't just can't do, and one of them is the gift of holding space, and then they quoted my article. So it's also being used in business places where people are showing an alternative to what is being more and more mechanized in the workforce. And even heard from military chaplains that are using it, and I've had quite a significant response from within the military that people are, are learning to hold space for each other in trauma situations, for example, in military experience. So it's been really fascinating. It seems to have quite a universal appeal for people in different walks of life and careers. What hit me as you were speaking is that a lot of times people who are holding space or doing their work energetically, they know how to do it And it's a feeling, and sometimes the feeling doesn't translate easily into our verbiage. And what I found really nice, and I think why, and my feeling as to why it really hit people, is that you had one of those magical or rare moments where you were able to translate this intuitive feeling space, and people immediately recognize it and articulate it in a very loving way, not only a loving way, but in a practical way. 
whatever star you were sitting under that the night or day you wrote that, I would go back there again. Maybe it was a tree. <laughs> <laughs> it could very well have been a tree because, to be honest with you, a lot of my inspiration comes when I'm out wandering in the woods. So it very well may have been an inspiration of a tree that supported me, held space for me. <laughs> now I'd like to move on to the eight tips on holding the space and as you shared earlier your observations of this palliative care nurse as you went through a very personal situation in your life a big life experience <laughs> with your mother um, you came up with these eight tips and if we could go through each of the eight tips I think that would be really valuable for our listeners so would that be okay with you? Certainly, I'd be happy to. What we'll do is we'll do the one, two, dance. I'll read the tip, and then you'll get a chance to explain it. So mine is the easy part. (laughs) First tip that you're sharing in your blog is give people permission to trust their own intuition and wisdom. So how would you like to expand upon that? I think that's really important in many, many different arenas. Like often, if you've had a hospital experience, for example, I supported my husband in the hospital several years ago, and you're always afraid that you're doing something wrong. If there's people in authority there that are, you know, that, oh, I can't go in this room or I can't go get this, or, you know, I need to support a person. But if you're really holding space for somebody, you make them feel that their intuition and their wisdom on a situation is trustworthy. And that is really important because it just gives people a sense of their own authority and their own wisdom. And it frees them. It frees them from that burden of always worrying what they might be doing wrong in that situation. It's a really empowering thing to do. Did you find yourself going into the intuition, wisdom, vibration, or were you in your head and you had to move into that because someone gave you permission by holding the space? Yeah, I think it's kind of a dance. I mean, you go back and forth, and some moments you doubt yourself, especially when you're supporting your mom, you know, are we doing this right? And and I I have this really clear memory, actually. My mom was sitting in the big easy chair in, in her living room, and very weak at age, and I was sitting close to her. Our, our heads were together, and it might have even been in that moment that that photo was taken that's on the blog. Yeah. And yeah. she just looked at me, and she says, I don't know how to do this. And I wow. looked at her and said, Mom, I don't know how to do this either. And it was just such a acknowledgement that she didn't know how to die, and I didn't know how to support her in dying, but we were there in that space together uh, experiencing something brand new together, and we were, we, you know, we were present for each other and trusting the intuition that we would figure the journey out along the way. There's no right way to do that. And I guess if you were in your head, you would have been trying to find a solution or verbiage to comfort your mother and what you chose to do is simply be there together. Your mom from the other side must be so proud of you. As I get chills down my back, I might have had. Yeah. (laughs) The second point is give people only as much information as they can handle, and that packs a punch. What are you talking about with that one? Well, I think that we have a tendency when we're trying to support somebody, we want to dump everything we know about that situation on them to help them fix their situation. But especially if somebody is in trauma or somebody is going through grief, etc., they can only handle so much information. They need a certain amount of information, but they don't need the whole truckload dumped on them. So, for example, the palliative care nurse, she would come every couple of days and she'd say, okay, here's what to expect. And then a few days later, she'd 
knowing that mom was closer to death, she'd give us a little bit more information on when she dies, here are some of the things that you need to do, et cetera. And, and it was just that little pieces was all we needed. And we knew we could always pick up the phone to ask her questions if we had more information, but we didn't feel overwhelmed with the information about things that weren't necessary in that moment. In that moment, we needed to be in the experience and in the emotions and in the grief. We didn't need to be in that headspace of knowledge. Heather, when you said give people only as much information as they can handle. So the palliative care, if I'm understanding correctly, the palliative care nurse was giving you X amount of information. Did that also apply to your mom? Was she given as much information as she could handle? I think so, yeah. My mom at that point when she was dying, she wasn't understanding a lot. So she was not, we were not conveying a lot of information to her. We were answering her questions if she had them. And she was sort of in and out. It was a bit fluid in terms of her understanding. But you're right. There was only so much that she could receive and understand. And if she did have questions, we were straight with her. But we did not overburden her with needing to know too much. I like that word overburden. I think I'll be using it all week. Please do not overburden it. <laughs> I was just going to say, I'll get to this in another point, but we do have this tendency that ego gets in the way that wants to make sure that people know we know a lot. You know, like if, if you could be the palliative care nurse that feels the need to teach people, instruct people to make them realize that you're really wise about this. But that's not serving anyone. That's only serving your own ego. Yeah, and as you were saying that, the other thing that was coming to me was that when you're you're sharing all kinds of information, you're giving people more data to process. So as they're processing the data, it's very hard for them to stay centered. And that's when I think the overwhelming feelings kind of come in. You're overwhelmed by the experience, by the emotions, the analytical part of analyzing the data that you're receiving. Yeah, exactly. And when we're in in really high stress or trauma or grief situations, we don't need to be pulled into that headspace. You know, there'll be time for that later when we're processing it. For example, in my grief journey, I mean, I was very much present in the experience of it then. It, you know, in the follow in the two years since then, I've spent a lot more time thinking and reading about grief and understanding it more deeply. But I was not prepared and and didn't want to be burdened with that kind of headspace knowledge at that time. If you'd given me an essay about grief at that time, I would have tossed it out because it wouldn't have been the right time. (laughs) You can come back to that later in the processing, but in that moment, be prepared to experience it. And if you're holding space for someone, be prepared to just simply allow them to experience what they need to at that time. And there will be a time and a place to process the data later, and that's very important for people because often they need to be offered permission then the other part is trusting that there will be time because it is a process and a process that almost everybody on earth goes through. Good to remember. Now, the third one is don't take their power away. Yes, that's a really kind of a tricky balance because you want to offer them support. And when when a person is feeling really lost, you want them to know that they can lean on you. But they need to be able to choose when to lean on you and when to stand on their own two feet. And that's something that comes with practice, I think. Because there were certain things that the palliative care nurse did for us or offered for us that we were so grateful that she did. 
But in other situations, she simply allowed us to make the decisions. You know, when it came, for example, she said, when when your mom dies, you don't have to call the funeral home right away. You have as much time as you want. The decision is yours when you call. When you feel ready for, to release her body, that's when you call. And that was such a freeing kind of offering that she gave us, that we could make that decision, that we had the power to make that decision. And to know, again, it goes back to our intuition, know as long as we needed to to sit with mom's body and to welcome the people that needed to sit with her body before it was released. So allowing some decision-making while at the same time being willing to take some of the decision-making away from people if you need to. And and this harkens back. My dad died 10 years before my mom, and dad died very suddenly in a farming accident. And we were so grateful for the people that showed up and were there caring for dad's animals. He had a functioning farm, so there was animals to be cared for. There was so much work to be done. So they just swooped in and did the work that needed to be done. So taking some of that away well, at the same time, never taking away our power to make decisions about what needed to be done was exactly what we needed at that time. And people are so used to giving their power away to authority figures. To mm-hmm. me, this process feels very natural and it feels empowering. Yes, and I think that's really a profound statement of what our culture has become. And we have become a culture of consumers where we assume that those in authority have power and that they have decision-making capacity. And think about the way that we educate our children in the school system, that there's a power imbalance, a power structure they have to adhere to. There's always these power structures that do diminish our own power. And that's our culture. That's become our culture. And so we assume, for example, when we're in a hospital, we assume that the doctors have to make the decisions, the nurses have to make the decisions. And we allow, like you say, we give that power away by assuming that's the way it has to be. But if we want to truly support and hold space for people, they need to be empowered to make those decisions themselves. When you look back at the process and being empowered and having the opportunity to make the decisions, does that make the whole experience not easier? That's probably not the right <laughs> word. You, you know what I'm reaching for. It's, it's mm-hmm. a good thing rather than a restrictive or a frustrating or stressful, maybe terrorizing, uncertain. Were you able to put the whole experience in a better place in terms of life? I think we were able to walk through it, and I I can't speak for my siblings. You know, each of us has our own experience, but did allow us to walk through it in a more healthy way than we might have if we had felt completely disempowered in that time. If somebody had insisted, for example, that she had to be in the hospital and we were reduced to visitors in the hospital rather than her caregivers, it would have been quite a different experience. And and not to say that that's not right for some families, it absolutely is for some in some situations. But for us to be able to make that choice, I mean, it was an incredibly powerful bonding time for my siblings and I. The four of us bonded in a way that a few experiences would allow us to. And I don't know that we would have had that experience in a hospital setting the same way. Interesting, because a lot of what this show is about, Healing Conversations, is a platform for an alternative way to look at things. And Mm -hmm. for people who are listening, who are very used to, and maybe even unconsciously giving their power away, this is a path. You've created a path, and you're saying this is okay. And not only that, 
you're, you have the experience. You're saying, I've walked this path, and it's okay. This is an option yeah. that's available. I love that. Yeah. What I'm going to do right now, Heather, is I'm going to give our listeners a chance just to stretch their arms and their legs for about two minutes. And while they're doing that, I'd like to offer some beautiful music from Ecuador. And then we'll come back and we'll move on to tip number four. How does that sound? That's great. Join Mildred Lynn McDonald for a fascinating tour of the mind-body-spirit connection. Enjoy nourishing conversations, thought-provoking guests, personal growth tools, compassionate guidance, practical tips, plus a generous sprinkling of East Coast humor and warmth. You'll also love our popular roundtable discussions featuring Heisey Lutmers, John Carousella, and Mildred Lynn. Airs the first Sunday of the month at 10.30 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. For more information, please go to HealingConversationsWithMildredLynn.com. Heather, we're back. I wanted to share with our listeners that we're speaking to Heather Platt. She's talking about her wonderful and insightful and practical and inspiring and motivating enough superlatives blog <laughs> about holding the space. And Heather has eight tips that she's suggesting for your consideration in her blog posting. We've just gone through three. I'll review them quickly. Give people permission to trust their own intuition and wisdom. Number two, give people only as much information as they can handle. Number three, don't take their power away. And now we're moving on to number four, keep your own ego out of it. Yes, as I say in my in my blog post, this is kind of a big one. I think this one almost is a prerequisite to all the others because if we want to be effective space holders for other people, we need to learn how to keep our egos out of it and, and to make the experience their experience, not our experience. Because we have this tendency to, I mean, if a friend is having a problem, if somebody is sick with cancer, if, you know, we want to solve it for them. And, and I have experienced that, you know, my my mom had cancer and since then my brothers had cancer. And if I would share that online, there's a, there's a quick rush of people that want to give us advice on the best ways to resolve cancer or this or that. And we don't simply sit and listen to people because we want to fix it first. 
And that fixing is a function of our ego that wants to be helpful, wants to resolve things for other people, wants to have the answers, etc. But that becomes a trap. And that also creates barriers between us and the other person. So in order to really hold space, we have to be able to admit we don't know the answers. We have to be, you know, like I said earlier, my mom, when she looked at me, she said, I don't know how to do this. Well, the only answer I could think of was to say, I don't know how to do this either. So to really hold space for her, I had to just keep myself out of the picture. And same thing with Anne. I mean, she was a very competent, talented palliative care nurse, but she never let it be about her. It had nothing to do with her. It was all about our experience and how she could support our experience. And that is really crucial. And I'm the parent of three daughters, and I can tell you one of the hardest things sometimes to do when you're raising children, for example, is to keep your own ego out of it because you keep thinking if they fail, it's a reflection on me. But they have to have their own experience, and I can only do that by supporting them lovingly without judgment and without my own stories becoming the traps that they'll trip on. And do you feel that your exposure to your palliative care nurse and that journey helped you in any way with your three daughters? Oh, very much. Every lived experience is a learning experience. You know, I feel like I've gone through the university of death, having lost a few people in my life. It's been a, you know, a whole degree in what what grief is, but also in what what it means to support other people. And having been supported, both you know, when my mom died, my dad died, and my son died, knowing how and recognizing the most effective ways to support me was one of the most beautiful things in recognizing oh this is how people want to be held and supported and not judged in that experience and I remember for example my sister-in-law was diagnosed with cancer and my brother phoned me to tell me this and my sister-in-law was one of my best friends still is one of my best friends and he phoned me to tell me this and all I could do was sit on the phone and cry with him I had no words whatsoever Mm -hmm. and he told me afterwards that that was the best phone call he said, because it was oh. just the, the knowledge that you were walking this journey with me was all I needed to hear from you. I didn't need your wisdom or advice or pat answers for anything. I just needed to know that people were walking the journey with me. And that's what we can do for people when we are willing to, to keep our own ego out of it. I like that. Very well said, Heather. Very well said. Thank you. Now, number five is make them feel safe enough to fail. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. Well, as I said earlier, we have this tendency when, you know, you're in a situation that you're afraid you're going to do things wrong. What if I mess up and I'll get found out? You know, it's almost that small child in us that's afraid to fail. But we need to be given that permission or given that safety so that we can make mistakes. Because you know what? None of us, my siblings and I, like I said, we didn't know how to support anyone and least of all our mother who'd given birth to all of us how do you help that person die that's not something that anybody gives you instructions in but we had to feel like we were trusted enough that even if we did fail nobody was going to fault us for it because we were figuring out this journey as we went along so she taught us for example put a stint in mom's arm so that we could give her morphine when she was restless and and gave us very simple instructions to how and how to inject it and So we were injecting her with her morphine. And, you know, there were moments I thought, I'm not a nurse. I can't do this. And yet I knew I had to do it. And and I knew that if I made a mistake, you know what, it wouldn't be the end of the world. Mom was dying anyways. It wasn't something I could screw up. So 
just being safe enough that that gives you that autonomy again and empowers you and and makes you feel that uh, you're not being judged especially in those kinds of very situations very fraught with emotions and judgment can be one of the most damaging things in that situation and so if we believe we're not going to be judged for failure it really releases us from from much of our fears and, and anxiety in that time I'm sure there's people out there who are relating, especially to the judgment part. That's a really important one. Number six, give guidance and help with humility and thoughtfulness. Mm-hmm. This is a bit of a balance to the other ones. I said don't give too much information, and this is the the flip mm-hmm. side of that, to give just enough support. And like I said, when Dad was dying, people showing up on the farm with what we need to keep the farm functioning was absolutely the most thoughtful there was one gentleman who's a neighbor and very dear friend of my dad's very introverted fellow rarely spoke many words to us when he showed up on the farm and yet he knew exactly what needed to be done for the animals on dad's farm and it was such an incredible gift to us that he just showed up and did that and I don't know if he ever knew how meaningful that was to us but you can do that in such a silent gracious way of just showing up and supporting without making it a burden on us or anything. And the same for this palliative care nurse. There were some things that were hard for us. For example, we knew mom wouldn't want us to bathe her. It was She was too proud to want her children to see her in that way. And so those were things that Anne knew intuitively that she would take away from us and the need to do certain things. And she simply offered, you know, I'll come every few days to bathe your mom. And that was a relief because there were things that were very hard for us to do as much as we wanted to support mom. So it's it's knowing how to offer that grace in those times and just give just the right kinds of support, which is we don't always get it right. And, I, you know, I don't want to pretend that I will know exactly what to do the next time a friend's going through this. But we try and, we you know, we keep making the right effort and with the right heart in the right place, we can figure these things out. Some people also don't know what to do and the thought of getting it wrong paralyzes them so they don't do anything and then they're haunted by guilt or I didn't do anything when I could have for a long time after that. And I remember something my sister told me when she was going through a stretch of her friends were having some life traumas. She said what she learned from the experience is always call, just call, just pick up the phone and call. Just showing up is going to help the person on the other end and you don't have to do anything else if you're yeah. not sure, but make that call, pick up the phone. Yeah, I think that we underestimate just the power of our presence in a time like that. Like It was especially true when my dad died. There were friends that drove quite far just to be at his funeral. There were friends that, we had small kids at the time, and friends that came and just said, let us babysit while you're deliberating over the funeral and stuff. And every little bit like that, it, you don't have to do something big. You just need to show up give a call, even send a card. Everything is noticed in those times and appreciated. And I remember another time one of my sister-in-laws, her dad died very suddenly and she had to fly into the city where I live. You know, she didn't plan to get a ride to where her mom lived. And and I said, no, I'm going to be there to drive you. And she said, she still talks about seeing me at the airport, just my presence when she was in the deepest grief of that sudden loss, just being there 
in present. I had no idea what to say, or the only thing I knew what to do was to give her a ride from the airport, and that's exactly what I needed to do. So it does not have to be a big grand gesture. It just has to be a presence. If that person means something to you, show up and be that presence. And number seven, this is a good one. Create a container for complex emotions, fear, and trauma. Well, this is something I'm learning more and more of in my work as a facilitator and conversation host is that when people are going to have complex emotions, and it happens a lot in the retreats or women's circles that I host, we need to know how to, in the circle way, which I'm, I'm very active in and, and teach in, which I've learned from Anne Linnea and Christina Baldwin, my mentors, they talk about holding the rim. And it's it's hard thing to describe in simple words. I don't know if I have a sound bite for it, but it's really about being that safe container for other people, offering them safety, offering them a safe place to land, a place to fall apart, a place to just be completely themselves and authentic and broken if they need to be in that moment. And again, that's about non-judgment, but it's also it's just about being strong enough to hold that for them. And it's, again, I, I do a lot, quite a bit of coaching, and sometimes people come to me with just genuinely brokenness, and they just need to cry for half an hour, and I let them. And you know what? They walk away from those calls, and I think, well, I really didn't do much. And, they, and then they, they email me later to say that was exactly what I needed because nobody just lets me cry. And Mm -hmm. so we can offer that for each other. And we don't need to do, again, it doesn't have to be a grand gesture. We just need to sit and be present and give people space to cry if they need to cry or, or release those emotions or be angry in that moment if they need to without trying to fix it, without trying to redirect it, anything. Just let it be released and then help them get up again off the ground when they're ready. I like that one too. I, I seem to like all of these. I keep saying I like this. I like this one. <laughs> now, number eight, allow them to make different decisions and have different experiences than you would. Mm-hmm. The fact is, when we're holding space for other people, we don't direct the situation in any way. We can guide if there's guidance needed, we can offer support and advice if it's welcomed. We don't do that without knowing that it's welcomed. But we also have to trust that this person may have a radically different experience than us in that moment, and that's going to be okay. That's their lived experience. And, again, if we let our ego get in the way, then we try too hard to direct them into learning the wisdom that we have instead of what they need to learn. But as I said, with the dying experience, for example, and the palliative care nurse and the other people that supported us, They didn't get involved in anything to do with, for example, our religious traditions, if we had any kind of rituals that we needed to do in mom's dying, etc. They simply let that experience be ours. And that can feel profoundly empowering as well. And I'll relate another story related to my dad. And and this was quite, uh, it turned out to be quite profound for myself and my siblings. My dad died in a farming accident. My dad was very connected to the earth, was very much a, a very grounded in connection to his animals and to the land. And when he died, my brother said, my oldest brother said to us, he, he said, 
he remembered dad having made a comment after his own dad, my grandpa had died. Dad had said, I kind of wished I could have buried him myself and been physically involved in that burial. And my brother, that stuck in his mind for some reason. He said, I don't care what the rest of you choose to do, but I am going to shovel dirt on dad's coffin at the grave site. And I found it a little puzzling. It didn't feel like something for me. But when my brother started shoveling dirt, there were four shovels, and my siblings and I, and eventually my mom and other people, started participating as well and shoveling the dirt onto Dad's coffin. And it was incredibly meaningful experience. So glad my brother brought it up because I, I wouldn't have thought of it. And yet it was one of the most meaningful experiences at my dad's funeral because it felt so honoring of him. It felt so connected to the experience instead of distancing ourselves in one of those. We tend to be kind of clinical when it comes to death. Mm-hmm. So we were so grateful that the funeral directors were very open to us choosing to do that and didn't judge us for that or treat us like that was just a silly choice. It was meaningful, and, and we were so grateful that we could do it. When you were mentioning that, I was starting to fill up, and I was filling up because it touched me so deeply. It sounded so beautiful, what your family experienced there, and I hope that maybe your words and your example can encourage other people who are listening to take that step also. Because people hesitate. They have these ideas, and then they hesitate. I really hope so, and I'm learning that more and more, that we have to take back our own need for ritual in in birth, in death, in all of those things. We have allowed ourselves, to, like I said earlier, to become consumers, and so we hire people to do these things for us. We hire funeral directors to direct the whole thing, and we have completely disempowered ourselves and separated ourselves from the acts of birth and death and some of those really significant parts of our lives. And we need to take that back. We need to, and I I wish now that I had been more aware of what I needed in my birthing experiences because some of my birthing experiences were fairly traumatic and didn't need to be if I had been more empowered and known that I had more choices in that time. I really admire and respect people who, who take those choices back and decide, you know, for example, to do home births or to to care for the, the body of their parents, you know, the way we did to some degree. And all of those choices, I think, are a return to our spirit and a return to our own desire for ritual and, and a reconnection with ourselves and with, with what matters in our lives. You created another blog in March 2015 called How to Hold the Space for Yourself First. Well, I, it was something that I was left with after the blog went viral and I kept hearing from so many people. What really struck me is that there are so many incredible people that are responding to this who are talking about how they're holding space for other people. And a, a little piece of me began to worry that they would not adequately hold space for themselves so that they were strong enough to do it for other people. And so I thought I need to put another offering into the world that supports people because sometimes when we do this work, we become too selfless, and that's not a healthy thing because we will fall apart in that. We will, we will not maintain our own strength if we don't first face for ourselves. And so I wrote the follow-up piece for those people for, to say that, look, this is not something you're doing. If you deplete your own resources, you cannot offer it to other people. And so, for example, I think I mentioned this earlier in our conversation, a woman emailed me and 
just recently was talking about how she held space for her mother in in a really difficult conversation and her mother was in a very blaming place and an angry place and and this woman who emailed she walked away from the conversation the mother walked away feeling really good like she'd been heard but this woman walked away feeling really fragile and wounded and and she realized that in that conversation she had been working so hard to hold space for her mother that she had not protected herself in that conversation and that's my fear that if people go into this you know not guarding themselves if they don't protect their own energy and they don't give themselves that space and the spiritual practices they need or all of those things ahead of time they will wound themselves and and not adequately be able to do it for other people so it's not selfish to look after yourself first it's it's imperative yes yeah i agree with that now if someone wanted to read the two blogs the second one is how to hold the space for yourself first they are on my blog if you go to heatherplett.com and then Mm -hmm. visit my blog you can scroll down the the first one is dated march 11 2015 and the second one is right after that but they are all there and i hope that people visit Oh, I think they will, Heather. I have a sneaky suspicion that they will be visiting a lot. <laughs> and in, in fact, actually, if you visit the blog, the very most, the most recent post that I just wrote this week was on how to hold space when there is an imbalance of power. I think that might be interesting if people were listening to your section on conflict earlier in, on this program. I was mm-hmm. listening in, and uh, they might be interested in that because it talks about how we can hold space when either we or the other person has more or less power. Excellent. Heather, I think you're on a roll. (laughs) (laughs) Now tell us a little bit more about the type of work. You mentioned that you're a facilitator and you're doing all kinds of wonderful work out in the world. So what actually do you do and what services do you offer or books or classes? I do a lot of things. I have a hard time defining myself by one simple sentence. I'm a blogger. I mean, I write at least one blog post per week. I have several online courses that people can sign up for. Uh, Just yesterday, for example, I had a one-day workshop. I do three or four times a year. I run a one-day writing retreat online called Open Hearted Writing Circle. So I support people in their writing. And then I have other online courses. One of them is called Mandela Discovery. So it's about learning how to use a mandala journaling process to really do self-discovery work. And then another online course called The Spiral Path, A Woman's Journey to Herself. And that's using the labyrinth to help people really learn to go inward, to do their own self-discovery journey. And then I do coaching and I do in-person retreats and courses as well. My, all of my work is about helping people reconnect, whether that reconnection is with yourself, with your community. I do circle work where I host people in circle and I also teach the circle way or reconnecting with the earth or reconnecting with spirit. It's all about that connection work is, is very central to my work. It sounds like you're doing exactly what's in your highest interest to do. Very much so. It's been a path to finding just the the sweet spot for me, and and it's very exciting to be in that place and to do that work. Well, thank you for doing the work. And what would be the best way for people to get a hold of you? Because I know someone's probably listening out there, and they're seriously considering 
what you're saying and would like to talk to you or engage in some of your services, what's the best way? Well, you can find me almost everywhere at Heather Plett. So heatherplett.com is my website address. There's a contact form there if people want to email me or check out my courses, etc. I'm also Heather Plett on Facebook and on Twitter and, and almost everywhere. So if you remember Heather Plett, you can find me. And before we leave, I'm going to play a beautiful song from Cape Breton Island. That's where I'm from. It's called the Cape Mm. Breton Lullaby. And once again, a little stretch break. And when we come back, Heather, I'd love to invite you to share some inspiration or motivation or something with our listeners to help them move through the day in a good way. How does that sound? Sure. It sounds great. Healing Conversations with host Mildred Lynn McDonald on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Find out more at fireflywillows.com. Enjoy the show. And we're back. This is Mildred Lynn McDonald, and we're listening to Healing Conversations. Our special guest today is Heather Platt, and she's talking about holding the space. She's just shared eight wonderful tips on how to hold the space. And now we are going to be very fortunate because she's going to offer a little piece of wisdom or advice or motivation. Are you there, Heather? I am here. Drum roll. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the pressure. (laughs) pressure. (laughs) No, no pressure. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. 
Well, the piece I'd like to offer people as we go is that I was inspired recently reading the book called Mindfulness by Ellen Langer. And in it, she talks about the difference between between being mindless and being mindful in the world. And she talks about mindlessness is when things become habit and we no longer really notice that we're doing them. And the mindfulness is when we bring ritual back into our lives because then we are aware and present for what we're doing. So I would like to invite people to bring ritual back into their lives in some way. And some of the ways that I do that are to walk labyrinths. I love to walk labyrinths because it just brings me present in a in a fresh way. And when, when we walk the labyrinth, there are three stages to the labyrinth walk. When you're walking inward, it's the release. So letting go of what is burdening you. And then at the center, it's receiving. So it's just sitting and being present and being open to what whatever wants to arrive for you in, in your heart. And, and and then once you've received that, then the walking out again is the return. So it's taking a step to bring whatever you've received into the world. So find a way to make a ritual that represents that labyrinth walk, whether it's just walking into the woods. And as you're walking in, I have a park close to my house that I just love to wander in. So as you walk forward, just release and just, you know, say I'm releasing the the anger, I'm releasing the weightiness, I'm releasing the frustration right now. I'm just releasing these old stories and try to let them go. Even sometimes I'll carry a rock that represents what I'm releasing and at some point I'll just set it down and then find a place to sit. I, in my park, there's this beautiful stone bench that I'll just simply sit and be quiet for a while and that's the receiving place, the center of the labyrinth. And just be open to whatever and and it doesn't need to be and sometimes nothing really happens sometimes it's just an opportunity to rest but sometimes there are really profound things will whisper to your heart in that moment and then as you walk out just consider how I'm returning and being intentional about coming back into your life in a more peaceful more present way so I invite you to find some ritual, whether you have a labyrinth close to you or can simply go for a walk in a neighborhood park and do that release, receive, and return. Thank you so much, Heather. And I'm going to go look for that release, receive, and return. Something great for people to think about, to carry through the day, and they'll be able to use it during the week. So thank you so much. And... Because I loved talking to you so much and I loved the topic area, Halsey, the space, I'm hoping that maybe this time next year you might consider coming back as a guest Mm -hmm. and updating us on what else you've written. All right. Certainly I'd be very happy to. (laughs) Who knows where you'll land after this work? I have a feeling. Who knows? So have a wonderful (laughs) day. Thank you so much, Heather. You've been a fabulous guest. If anybody has any questions for Heather or they'd like to go to her website, Heather, once again, it is? HeatherPlatt.com. And I welcome everyone and I respond to every email, even if sometimes it takes me a little while. Thank you so much. And everybody, enjoy the day. And we'll see you on next Healing Conversations. Bye for now. Join Mildred Lynn McDonald for a fascinating tour of the mind-body-spirit connection. Enjoy nourishing conversations, thought-provoking guests, personal growth tools, compassionate guidance, practical tips, plus a generous sprinkling of East Coast humor and warmth. 
You'll also love our popular roundtable discussions featuring Deb Carousella, Heisey Lutmers, John Carousella, and Mildred Lynn. Airs the first Sunday of the month at 10.30 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. For more information, please go to HealingConversationsWithMildredLynn.com. This program was brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. We hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you for joining us. Please join us next time on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E for Amethyst Oracle, Divination with a Queer Twist with Heisey Lutmers and Charlie Harrington, Tuesday evening at 8 p.m.